So several months back, uh, my wife and I bought one of those doorbells with the video camera in it. Yeah, we bought one. And then I said, yeah, I'll put that up. Uh, I still haven't done that. That was many moons ago. Uh, but the reason is, I'm not really sure how to go about it. You see, it, it needs to be hardwired to the house. But we don't have doorbell wire run right now. And I don't really want wire on the outside of the house. So I've got to find a way to, to snake really thin gauge doorbell wire through an outer wall with insulation from point A to point B and all that stuff. And I'm just not exactly sure the best way to go about it. And side note, if you, if you have a good idea, come see me after church. Uh, but I share that because it's a good example of the kind of thing we deal with all the time, maybe daily. We know that something is really important, and we have like a general idea of how to go about it, but maybe we don't know exactly like what our next step should be specifically. Uh, and we counter this a lot of different ways. Maybe it's something big like, like retirement. We know retirement and, and preparing for that, that's a really big, important thing. And we probably have a general idea of how we should go about that. You know, you, you invest. But when it comes to like the specific next steps of what should I invest in or what's right for me, what should I buy into, maybe we're just not exactly sure what to do. Or maybe it's, a, it's like a relationship kind of a thing. We know that there's a, a relationship in our life that is strained or afraid a little bit, and we know that making amends, that's an important thing. We ought to do that, and we probably should talk to the person, but maybe we're not exactly sure how to start that conversation, what we should say, shouldn't say. The finer points kind of get a little messy or lost on us. We experience this all the time, and that's the kind of thing that we're talking about this morning. Something that's really important, but maybe we don't really know how to engage with it immediately. And this is the conclusion of a series that we've been in for four weeks now uh, called Life, Liberty, and Lamb Chops. And in this series, we've been talking about this idea of Christian freedom and liberty. Sometimes there's this misunderstanding of the Christian faith that when I say yes to Christ, all of a sudden there's like one specific, narrow way I'm supposed to think about everything and feel about everything and talk about and vote and, and so on and so on and so on. When in reality, that's not the case. There are absolutes in Scripture. There are absolute yeses. There are absolute noes. But th there's a whole lot of stuff, like thousands and thousands of things that we deal with on a daily basis to which Scripture doesn't speak directly or, or clearly, and, and the beauty of Christian freedom and liberty is we have this gift from God to just do the best we can, so to speak, or for lack of a better word, just try to honor him between the guardrails of Scripture as best makes sense to our conscience and convictions. That's a huge load off of our shoulders, like a huge sigh of relief. God doesn't expect us to get every single thing absolutely 100% right all the time. There's a lot of leeway where he just says, just, just live and honor me best you can. Man, that's great. That's the gift of Christian freedom and liberty. The problem is the way that you find the best way to honor God in a certain circumstance might be different from the way that I think we can best honor God in a certain circumstance, and our differences of opinions might cause some disunity or some friction between us. And those, those issues, those disputable matters, can sometimes run deep and, and it can cause this tension and even start to, to cause some harm to one another's faith if we're not careful. There is a responsibility that comes with freedom and liberty, and that's what we've been talking about throughout this series. Last week, we focused a lot on unity, the importance of church unity, and why we should take care to use our, our liberties responsibly. But this is one of those things that we talked about earlier. Like, church unity is really important, 
And we probably have a general idea of what that means and how we can maintain that, but maybe we're a little lost on like what specific next steps can I be doing and taking to help foster this important unity in the church. That's what we're going to wrap up this series with today. And to do that, we're going to be looking at the book of Romans yet again, this time chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to open those to Romans 15. We're going to bring the lights up just a smidge so that we can see our Bibles. Uh, If you don't have your Bible with you, don't worry. We have the passages on the main screen behind us always. And then we have the FCC Monmouth app that you can download and use on your mobile device. Uh, You just tap the Sunday button in the bottom right-hand corner, and you'll find our passage pulled up with sermon notes ready for you to engage with and get the most out of our time together today. So as we get into our passage, Romans chapter 15, verse 1, right out of the gate, we're going to find there's this really big, huge direction that we're given if we want to maintain unity. It goes like this. To promote unity, we must choose to bear one another's weaknesses. We have to choose to bear one another's weaknesses. We're going to unpack what that means a little more fully in just a moment. But before we do, let's look at the passage and let's just read this instruction. Romans 15, verse 1. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. So you can see the instructions right there in that first line, bear with the failings or the weaknesses of the weak. But before we dive into what that means specifically, let's unpack the rest of what's said in this verse so we're all on the same page and can grasp the same intent here. It talks about two different groups of people, the weak and the strong. So who are we talking about? What is that a reference to? Little reminder, a little refresher in case you're just joining us or you've forgotten in the busyness of the week. In the first century church of Rome, there is an issue that is dividing the people. It's the issue of diet. Whenever you went to the marketplace to buy meat, it never was just like religiously neutral meat. Every cut of meat, pork chops, side of beef, lamb chops, hence the name of the series, that you bought in the marketplace had been sacrificed to some god or idol in a temple. And so there were a lot of well-meaning Christian people that looked at this meat, sacrificed to an idol, and said, I cannot in good conscience eat that. I don't want anything to do with idolatry. I don't want anything to do with false gods. I just want to worship Jesus, so I'm only going to eat vegetables. That was their position. And this is the group of people that Paul in the book of Romans calls the, the weak. And this weakness has nothing to do with their faithfulness. And it has nothing to do with their commitment to Christ. And you can tell, like, they're altering their entire diet just to be faithful to him. This is, they are committed people. Rather, the weakness describes their understanding, their grasp of the gospel and its full implications for life. When Jesus died on the cross, he, he did so for the forgiveness of our sins to set us free from that guilt and from that shame. But he also set us free from the requirements of of the law and the ceremonial ritual requirements of the Old Testament so that in him no longer is it a matter of, of you have to do this to please God and you cannot do this to please God and this sort of rigid ritualistic kind of faith. Rather, it became this freedom we're talking about where here's the guardrails, just honor me the best you can through your life in between those absolutes. It's a wonderful, wonderful freedom, but the, the weak haven't quite grasped that. We could also understand weak as as immature. That's another suitable translation. They haven't quite grasped the fullness of the gospel, and because of that, they kind of put unnecessary restrictions on their lives, like, I'm not going to eat meat. 
It's kind of like training wheels in a way. You know, right now my son, uh, he's six, he loves riding his bike. He's taking a, a great joy in that. And so he rides his bike all the time, but he, he wears training wheels on there. And those training wheels are not a sign of a lack of joy or a lack of enthusiasm in riding. You can see on his face, he's very pumped to ride his bike. Neither are those training wheels uh, an indication of like an inferior bike. I'm pretty sure he could throw it off the back of a truck and it'd still be good. Like those wheels are simply a sign of his immaturity as a rider. He hasn't developed those skills yet. The balance stuff, we're not real great at it. Sometimes we just fall over walking. So like we're working on it, right? He's got some growing up to do. That's what the wheels represent. And these restrictions that these first century believers are living under kind of represent the same thing. It's not an inferior faith. It's not a lesser standing in God's kingdom. It's just their training wheels. It's a sign that there's some growing up to do in their understanding of Jesus and the full implications of this great thing we call the gospel. Today, we experience this maybe in some different ways, not so much in can we eat meat, can we not eat meat. Maybe we experience it in a matter of can we drink alcohol, can we not drink alcohol. The Bible doesn't forbid that, but maybe because of our, our feelings on alcohol, how we are raised, our experiences with it, there are restrictions we put on ourselves, training wheels, so that we can maintain a clear conscience before the Lord. And that's fine. Maybe there's a hot button issue that we like to discuss or that we often hear discussed in public uh, conversation, but, but we're afraid that we're going to say the wrong thing or, or maybe our past experiences with the issue, maybe we get a little heated about it. So to avoid saying something we might regret, we put restrictions on ourselves and we just say, I'm not going to talk about that issue or that thing. You're free to do that. That's fine. This is the weak, weak, the immature, we might say, in the faith in, in Rome. But there's another group of people. There's the, the strong, we might say the more mature. They have grasped the full implications of the gospel. They recognize, hey, I can eat this meat. I don't care what imaginary friend it was dedicated to. There's only one real God. He made this meat, so I'm going to praise him while I eat it. And they kind of grasped a fuller picture or the fuller implications of just how free they were in Jesus. The problem is that they are utilizing these, these maturities, this strength, at the expense of the weak. They're not taking into consideration their sensitivities, their consciences, and so on. And so though they have different opinions, both of which, by the way, are right, they're coming into conflict with one another. They're starting to judge one another, condescend one another, and division is creeping in. This is how differences of opinion sometimes work, no matter what issue it is. And the remedy to all of this, we just read chapter 15, verse 1, Paul says, hey, y'all need to bear with one another's failures, one another's weaknesses. Bear with one another's immaturities. That's the instruction. And bear with, by the way, now we can start to clarify that term, that does not mean simply overlook or ignore or just sort of live and let live. You do things your way, I'll do things my way, and we'll just sort of be okay. Maybe that's what we think of when we hear bear with. But if we were to look at the actual word, if you're not familiar, the New Testament originally was written in Greek, and sometimes when we translate from one language to another, there's some nuance that gets lost. If we look at this actual word when it's translated, it has more of the connotation of to pick up or to carry rather than to overlook or ignore. There's a couple of pictures I want to show you that illustrate the difference here. If we want to think of this in terms of a race, here's the, the first picture. This would be a good representation of what it looks like to overlook or to ignore. 
we have a, a runner here in the middle of the picture. And something has happened to the runner. Something is hindering his ability to run. He cannot run as freely as he desires or he might otherwise be able to. And he's fallen. But there's a lot of other runners, a lot of strong runners around him that are overlooking. They're just ignoring this runner laying on the ground. They've got their own race to run. So you run your way, as slow as it may be. I'll run my way because I'm free to run unhindered and I'm just going to go and cross the finish line because that's how we do, right? This is a picture of overlooking or ignoring. And this is not what Paul is commanding people in Romans 15.1. What he's commanding or instructing, rather, is more like the second picture. So here's another runner who has some weakness, who has stumbled, who struggles, who is unable for whatever reason to run as freely as he might be able to. He's hindered. But instead of overlooking or ignoring, we have these stronger runners on either side. And they have picked him up, and they are carrying him. They're bearing him, if you will. Now, is this going to slow those strong runners down? Absolutely. Are they going to be able to run this race as unhindered and free as they might otherwise be able to? No. They're going to be slowed down to match his pace. But the crazy thing is they don't really seem to care. There's a reason they stopped to pick him up. Winning isn't always a matter of crossing the finish line first. Sometimes winning is a matter of crossing together. That's the more important thing. And that's what's illustrated not only in these pictures, but in this instruction from Paul. We all have differences of opinions on things. Some of them may be mature. Some of them may be immature. Bearing with one another does not mean, well, you do your thing, I'll do my thing, and we'll just overlook each other and pretend everything's fine. Rather, it means picking up the weak or the immature, bearing those, taking those weaknesses on ourselves and matching their pace. In the city of Rome, the instruction was this. If your eating meat makes faith more difficult for your weaker brother and sister, get rid of the meat. Don't eat it anymore. Are you free to eat it? Absolutely. But for their sake, to bear with their weaknesses, don't eat it. Because nothing should make the faith of a fellow believer more difficult than it already is. In our modern context, like we said, maybe the stuff in our cup causes somebody with a weaker conscience to struggle or to stumble. It's not worth it. Dump it out. Maybe there's some hot-button issue in, in society and we have a strong opinion about it, but our speaking about it tramples on the conscience of somebody to whom it affects very personally. Are we free to share opinions? Absolutely. But because we love each other, maybe we'll tamper those, or, or temper those, tamp those down. Maybe we'll keep it to ourselves. Or maybe it's social media. Maybe we have this tendency, we post, and we post things that we think are funny, or we post things we think are exciting, or this opinion that we really love. Maybe we, we read something that somebody says and we, we get angry and we type out this whole response and then we think, well, for like five minutes, should I hit send or not? You've been there? Is there a commandment that says, thou shalt not post? No. But maybe because we love our brothers and sisters, maybe because we don't want to make faith more difficult or we don't want to sow seeds of division, maybe we won't. My wife and I have a friend um, and, and she lives somewhere else. But during the heat of the pandemic, when everybody had an opinion on everything, and we shared everything on Facebook because that was the only way we saw each other and communicated, she shared her opinions a lot. And a lot of times, she found herself on, on kind of the opposite end of the spectrum than we did, particularly when it came to like masks and schools and things like that. And she had her reasons for why she felt that way, and we had our reasons for why we felt our way. 
But it was almost a daily thing. There would be posts insinuating the, the idiocy of, of people that didn't share her opinion or, or how you, you were betraying your Christian values to care for the vulnerable if you didn't share her opinion. And, and my wife and I would read this and it, it kind of hurt, honestly. It was kind of offensive, a little insulting. Now, if she were speaking to us directly, she would have never used those words and she would have never used that tone because we're friends. But for some reason, when we put a screen between us and other people, we forget that our words have weight, that they matter, that they register with people. And so it can be tempting to just hit post or hit send or hit share or hit like or whatever, not realizing we, we may be driving a divisive wedge between one another. Now, again, thou shalt not post, not in the Bible, but maybe, maybe because we love one another, maybe because we love the church, maybe we'll think twice about utilizing that freedom. Bear with one another's weaknesses. Take them upon ourselves to build one another up. Guys, this is huge. Like this, this is massive. And if we can embody this, each and every one of us can make huge strides in promoting unity within the body of Christ. But somebody has to take the initiative. And somebody has to take that first step and bear the brunt of the responsibility. And you may have noticed in our passage, there is one group of people that is specifically called to practice this. It's the strong, the mature. You see, unity requires the strong to lead with true maturity. And the emphasis is on true. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But first, I want to assure we all have responsibility to, to Bear. I mean, even if you're new in the faith, if you're just taking baby steps, we're all responsible for what we say. We're all responsible for what we do, how we interact and treat one another. We all have responsibility, but, but Paul makes no, no you know, trouble or confusion about this. The strong, the mature have the responsibility to take that first step. And we may be saying, well, that doesn't seem fair. Why should I be more responsible for maintaining unity than, than somebody else? Just because I've, I, I've grown up in the faith a little bit or I'm further or I understand a little bit more, why do I have to bear that responsibility? But honestly, this is not a revolutionary idea. It is the responsibility of the mature to bear with the immaturities of the immature. And that's true regardless of circumstance. If it's a matter of forgiveness or reconciliation or a matter of peace or unity, it is the responsibility of the mature to bear with the immaturities of the immature. Heck, it's true of woodworking, too. I mean, just this past Sunday, I was in the garage, I was working on a project, and I asked Levi, my son, hey, do you want to help me with this project? And he enthusiastically said, yes. Now, when I ask my six-year-old to help me with a project, I have very low expectations, because he is immature, because he has the attention span of a small bird. Like, this is just who he is. And so when I say, do you want to help? It's always something like, hold this tool, hold this board, hand me that thing. At most, you pull the trigger on the drill while I hold it in place. He got to use a ratchet for the first time on Sunday. He was ecstatic. You know, wasn't super helpful, but he was ecstatic and he got to do it. I'm never going to ask him to measure a board and cut it to length on the, on the circular saw. That's a disaster waiting to happen, right? He doesn't have the maturity. He's not able to, to measure well. He's not able, able to safely operate that saw. Like, I'd have to be insane to expect my six-year-old to be able to competently and safely and maturely handle that responsibility. It's the responsibility of the mature to bear with the immaturities of the immature. 
I'll do the hard stuff because you just can't. And that makes sense in every other circumstance, but when we get to this interpersonal relationship stuff, for some reason the walls go up and we say, that's not fair. But the reality is we cannot ask the immature to be something they're not. It is the responsibility of the mature, of the strong in the faith, to bear with, to carry and shoulder the immaturities of the immature. Here's, Here's something to think about. Okay, how can I ask an immature person to be mature? How do they grow in that? Well, they have to witness it. They have to see it. And not just pseudo-maturity or a kind of strength. They have to see a real maturity to know what it is and to model their lives after. And I think that's where the confusion and the apprehension comes sometimes. More and more I talk to people about spiritual maturity and spiritual growth and so on. It all tends to center around a particular kind of, of conversation. How much are you studying? How many studies are you in? What are you, what are you reading? What have you learned from Scripture? How much do you understand and comprehend? And we tend to associate spiritual growth and strength and maturity with knowledge. And that is certainly part of it, okay? Don't get me wrong. All of those are wonderful things. They can aid in growth. But when we look at what spiritual maturity and strength is depicted in Scripture, there's this whole other component that we sometimes miss or overlook, And I think we can see the difference whenever we we start to understand strength and maturity kind of on this this spectrum where there's a couple different milestones. This is how I think about it. It helps me. I'll share it with you. It's the framework I'm going to use. And this, by the way, this is a tool to assess ourselves, not assess one another. We don't know each other's hearts. That's God's job. But we can look at ourselves and maybe see like, how, where am I on this spectrum of maturity? On one end of the spectrum, at kind of this first milestone, you've got the, the immature, These are the people from Romans 14 and 15 that that have these restrictions on their lives, maybe because they don't grasp fully the the freedom that we have, they don't grasp fully the implications, and that's fine. That's where they're at in the moment. In Rome, it was people that limited what they ate. Maybe today, it's those of us who limit where we eat. You know, for some of us, there's just, there's a connotation to alcohol that we just can't get past. So we don't go to bars, we don't go to pubs, even if we're just going to have a sandwich there. We just don't go to those establishments. That's fine. Now, there's nothing in Scripture that limits you from going to such establishments, but if that's a restriction you put on yourself for your conscience, that is fine, and that is good. But that is an example of an un, uh, extra-biblical restriction. Or maybe for us, it's, it's holy days. Should we do work on Sunday? Isn't that the Sabbath, after all? Well, no, actually. The Sabbath is a particular thing from the Old Testament. It's, it's Saturday. It's part of Mosaic Covenant. And we're told in the book of Colossians chapter 2, don't let anybody judge you for what you eat or what you drink for religious festivals, new moon celebrations, or Sabbath days. So apparently even in the first century, there was this question for Gentiles of, do I, do I have to honor the Sabbath? What does that mean? What does that look like? All that to say, there's no restriction from doing work on Sunday. Now, if that's something our conscience feels strongly about or we have a conviction about, that's fine. Live within those confines, because that's how you best honor God. But it's not a mandate. There is freedom to work on Sunday, if that's your thing. There's examples like this, and all of this is an example of maybe there's some immaturity, some weakness of some variety, and we all have this in ourselves. We all have these things we put restrictions on ourselves for, but, but maybe that's where we're at. That's kind of this first milestone. 
in the middle, you've got kind of this milestone too. This would be those that, that have oh, maybe a little uh, more knowledge of Scripture. Maybe we've come to understand it a little better, understand the implications of the gospel. We're free with so many things. This would be like those people in Romans 14 and 15 that say, I can eat that meat even though it's been sacrificed to an idol. It's, it's not real. My conscience isn't bothered by that. And again, these would be the strong in faith. The problem was that they have this strength and they have this knowledge, but once again, they're not taking into consideration the weaknesses of their counterpart, their fellow believers. And it's to this exact attitude that the book of Romans points to and says, look, that's not real maturity. That's, that's not actual strength. It's knowledge. It's great. But you're not quite there yet. I like to think of it in terms of, of the word sophomore. You know, when, when you hear that word, maybe think of school, maybe high school, maybe college. I remember my freshman year of high school, I walked in the building, and everybody was huge, right? Anybody else have that experience? Like, you walk in, and it's like, everybody looks like they're giants. They've all got, like, full-fledged beards. They've been shaving every day, right? Like, everybody's just so much more mature. The reality was, I was 5'7 my freshman year. I wasn't exactly short. But everybody seemed so much bigger, and it was intimidating because I was immature. I wasn't familiar with the building, with the setting. I wasn't familiar with like the social aspects and how to navigate all of that. And that's why my sophomore year, it was a lot more fun. Because now I wasn't a novice. I wasn't, you know, the freshman. I could navigate the building. I could navigate the social aspects. Girls were still a mystery for years to come. But like most of the social aspects, I understood that. And you really think you're something. You're a little more mature when you're a sophomore. But it's easy to forget there's still two other levels above you. You know just enough to forget how little you actually know. In fact, that's kind of the, the meaning of the word sophomore. It comes from two Greek words. One is, is sophia, having to do with wisdom. The other is moros, having to do with foolishness. So a sophomore is literally a wise fool. You know just enough to think you know something, which means you know just enough to get into trouble and cause some damage. And that's these group of people in Romans 14 and 15. They know just enough to think they know something. We can eat this meat without apprehension. But they also know just enough to start causing damage to the other members in the church. They're sophomores. There is something higher, a, a maturity and a strength to which Paul is trying to encourage both them and us today to aspire to and to attain. He describes it in chapter 15, verse 3. It says, For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Now, that Old Testament passage, that, that's a reference to Psalm 69, verse 9. And in that psalm, David is lamenting the fact that God's enemies and those opposed to him are also David's enemies and opposed to him. And the insults and the rejection and the rebellion aimed at God, well, David's the one experiencing the brunt of that, unfortunately. And when Paul and so many other first century believers read that Old Testament passage, they immediately thought of Jesus and this, this greater fulfillment all of mankind's sin, our rejection and our rebellion against God, well, that fell on Jesus. It's sort of an indirect reference to his cross, which when you think about it, 
he had every right to forego and ignore. I mean, this is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He was there in the beginning. He'll be there in the end. This is the divine son of God. He had every right to live a peaceful, joyful, easy life. He had every right to live without the consequences of other people's sins hampering on his parade. He had the right to run freely and unhindered. But he didn't utilize that freedom. Instead, he bore our iniquities. He picked up and carried our trespasses and our sins. That's the example that he set when he served as our sacrifice. He bore with the weak. There's no way we could have accomplished what he did. There's no way we could have atoned for our sins. There's no way we could have been reunited with God in this fellowship and this relationship. The only way that would happen is if somebody did it for us. It's the responsibility of the mature to bear with the immaturities of the immature. That's the example Christ set. That's what real maturity looks like in this faith what real strength looks like. It's not simply a matter of how much do you know and how much do you understand so much as how much do you resemble Jesus and his willingness to set aside his liberties to build up fellow believers, brothers and sisters. That's maturity. And if we can aspire to that, as Paul seems to indicate in this passage, unity will take root and run deep. That's strength, church. And I share that so that those of us who think ourselves mature and think ourselves strong or those of us who aspire to be, which we all should be, will keep our eyes set on what really matters, what that standard really is. Grow in our knowledge and our understanding of Scripture. Grow in our understanding of theology. But more importantly, grow in resembling the character of Christ. That's the standard. And if we can do that, church... There's no lamb chop on earth that will divide us. There's something I want to leave you with as we, we close this sermon and we close this series. There's a lot of lamb chops, a lot of disputable matters that we could fight about. We could fight about what we eat, what we drink, what we buy, where we go, our viewpoint on A, B, or C. We could argue about a, our interpretation of a scripture verse. We could argue about what we post on social media. We could argue about all kinds of different things because there are thousands and thousands of things which we are given freedom and liberty to have our own opinions. But when we do cross that finish line and when the race is done and we stand there worshiping in praise of God, we're not going to be holding lamb chops in our hands and we're not going to be worried about drinking our cup and we're not going to be talking about the hot button issues of the day. And we're not going to be taking pictures, posting it on Instagram, sharing, liking, and so on. All of the disputable things that, that seem to divide us today that we could argue about will be stripped away. But there will be something that remains. It'll be the people in this room. Those of us who have crossed that finish line together. Because the kingdom of God and his people, it endures on and on and on, which ought to say something about the priority of unity over opinion. So many times the people we argue with are much more important than the things we argue about. And that's something to keep in mind, particularly when it comes to the body of Christ. So let no 
matter of food or drink or activity or possession or opinion, undisputable things make faith more difficult for somebody else. Let no disputable thing take root and be a source of division, but rather in worship and honor of Christ, let's set our lamb chops aside and let's focus on the people that he cherishes and loves and died for. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you for the unending challenge of Christ and his cross. It beckons us to come and to kneel. And when we kneel, we receive salvation and we receive forgiveness and we receive this calling to follow. And I pray that we follow him by learning more, by growing in our understanding. But more importantly, I pray that we grow in imitating him and setting aside our freedoms that we might bear with one another in love, that we might build up one another that we might strengthen the bonds of unity in your people, that we might proclaim the gospel more clearly through following the example of Jesus. Lord, it is about you. It always has been. It always will be. Let us keep that fixated in our minds. Let us run after you. And if need be, slow down to pick up others who struggle, that they might cross the finish line well. It's in your name we pray these things. Amen.